0: The following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. We are in the book of Jude. So if you are first time with us, welcome. We're very glad to have you. Uh, Welcome to Cornerstone Bible Church. My name is Chris Lowndes. Uh, I'm a pastoral intern here working with the elders. I'm an elder as well here. Um, I work part-time here, and I have a full-time job somewhere else, but Stacy, our full-time regular teaching pastor and elder, is gone this week. He is gone um, on vacation, getting some time with his family, and so we thought this time would be good to stop, what we're doing in Galatians, and we are going to give you a two-week version of the book of Jude. So, yeah, exciting, right? All right, That's, that's the first woo I ever heard in my preaching. We are going to go to the book of Jude. So, if you don't know where Jude is, go to the book of Revelation at the end, and then hang a left, not too sharp of a left, though, because if you go two pages or three pages, you'll pass over Jude completely. It's a short book. It is 25 verses. It's one chapter, and we're going to go through it together. Now, um, there are a couple of famous Judes I wanted to take a look at. You guys might know this Jude. Not the one we're hearing from this morning, all right? There is another famous Jude that I think you'll probably know a little better there he is, a <laughs> oh, man, Jude Koston. Um, And then, most likely, uh, whoever was there to paint this picture, this is maybe, perhaps, St. Jude, but I have no idea. So, um, we are in the book of Jude, and this is where we're going to start. Um, What we're gonna do this morning is a a study in, is looking at a letter, not narrative. So we spent, uh, I spent four weeks in the book of Ruth in the summertime. This is not a narrative like that. We're not telling a story. This is a real letter sent to real people with real issues. And so it reads much differently than a story would. We're not cracking a, a storybook. We're getting kind of correspondence between a father type pastoral position, Jude, and his people, the people that he would know and probably his disciples. So this is very different. We're going to read it very differently than the way that we read uh, Ruth or even Galatians because it's a different set of things that are going on, written by a different person. So it's going to be more like Paul in the sense of Galatians was a letter, but this will be different because it's completely different. Some of the different things in here we're going to find out are very specific to the occasion that Jude's readers are going to be a part of. So the nice thing about this book is that it's short. Um, and I thought that would be, when we were preparing for this, I was like, oh, sweet, two weeks, no problem. I can carry all that content, no problem. After I've continued to study and work through it, I recognized that I don't know if it will be just quite that easy. Um, so I told someone at the end of last service, what I should probably warn you is that you need to get in the Jeep that has no shocks in it and strap on because it's going to be a bumpy ride. There's a lot of stuff that we need to get through, and it's not comfortable stuff. Um, This is not a caring, loving, caressing section of Scripture, just to let you know. So we will read it in its entirety. So if you have your copy of God's Word, I'm just reading out the ESV. I'm going to read all 25 verses, all right? Start in verse 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt afterward, destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but he said, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error, and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept away along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn twice dead uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars from whom, for whom the, glo- the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud mouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last times there will be scoffers, following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, would you take this broken vessel you have redeemed and use him for your glorious purpose to be a channel of grace to your people through the foolishness of preaching may your word sink sink deeply into hearts and heads and do its work slowly making us complete equipped for every good work all glory is to you father we ask these things in the name of jesus christ amen so we're gonna take two sundays to cover jude we are going to start today. Uh, we're going to get through verse 16, 1 through 16. Next Sunday, we'll come back and do 17 through 25. It's a of a natural break, and you'll see why as we get through it, and especially as we get into next week, you'll see that it's very different content starting at those verses. So that's where we're going to stop today at verse 16. As we start out, let me throw out a disclaimer. Uh, the way that we will work through Jude, again, kind of like I said, will not be how we're working through Galatians, how Stacy is taking months to work through Galatians, because we're kind of turning over every stone, looking at the detail here, understanding his purposes over here, cross-referencing back to these other passages. You'll notice that Stacy sometimes will take one word, that and he has to explain it well, and we will go into an entire sermon on something that explains that well. This will not be like that. We are going to try to do a flyover of the book of Jude and try to understand the entire message if we possibly can. That's my job is to help us understand it, to make sure that we understand the whole, not just this and then that and pull a verse out here. But as we finish, our goal is to make sure that we can explain and understand what Jude is all about. Why did he write this to the people who received it and what does it mean to us? And so whenever we preach the book, a book of the Bible, we're trying to do several things at one time, right? I'm not just trying to do one. I'm, I'm trying to build our theology. As you come in over and over again, we're trying to build theology into, into our lives and understanding what Scripture is about. We're trying to use the text to address real situations in our congregation. Some of the stuff that we may need to be rebuked about. Some of the stuff that we need to be encouraged about. Some of the things that make us more complete in Jesus Christ. So we allow the text to speak to those things. Sometimes, foundationally, really, in the, in the art of preaching, we're trying to take it understand the explanation of the of the text we're trying to then take it and explain it again saying exactly the same thing that jude is we're not trying to twist it and do what we want to do with the text we want to say what did jude mean and then we want to say the same exact thing and that's what we're trying to do one more thing and you're going to pick up on this as we work through this today and, and next sunday there's one more thing that we as elders have worked to do as we preach today, and, and, and those that we're in the first service, and whoever might listen to this podcast, and whatever it comes and we, we hear the word preach from our pulpit, what we want to do is continually teach you to read the Bible well. You need to read the Bible well, because there may be a day when the leadership is, is gone for one reason or another whether we move or die or something else or we other leadership I'm not trying to be dark I'm just saying you need to be able to read scripture and you can and you're going to be held accountable to read it the world over does not have three or four copies of God's word in their house many of you probably do I do so I'm going to be pointing us as good readers and as good students To come back to text, get a pen or a pencil out. Don't be afraid to write in your Bible or notes. I'm not asking you to take notes, but I want you to make note of the things that make sense as you go along. At the end of this, as we go through, the truth is, you should be able to preach this sermon, know where I'm going, the next spot, not that you will get up here. My point is that you will know exactly where the next step is because Jude says it. All we're doing is saying the same thing that Jude says and trying to make sure we understand it well and explain it. Now, there was a different context. There's a different set of people he's writing to, so there's things that we may not understand right away. That's kind of my job to say, okay, let's understand some of those things. But you can understand all the cues that Jude is going to give you to understand this book. So, again, get your pencil out. If you want to use the corny phrase, get your thinking caps on. Be good students. Don't be lazy. No lazy Christians allowed. You need to plug in and listen and work through the text together. All right? So, that's your little teacherly you know, moment there. Ready? Here we go. So we will start by verse, going to verse 1 and verse 2. Like any other normal letter, we want to know who it's from. Again, some of you probably know this already, but this book is written by Jude. Verse 1 says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Probably more accurately, this is Judas or uh, Judah, they would call him. Um, It's been shortened to Jude, but that's probably what they called him. This is most likely the brother of Jesus Christ, one of the half-brothers of Jesus. Now, the question is, though, why didn't he call himself the brother of Jesus? I'll tell you, because he put something much more important as his connector to Jesus Christ. What does it call him there? His servant. The word is doulos, or it could be either translated servant or slave. So may I just point out that this man is Judas, one of Jesus' brothers, but that's not how he is going to produce or represent himself. He is first of all a servant of Jesus Christ. Now he's going to give you another designation. There's two. One is about his authority, and one's about who he is. He's going to identify himself by, I'm the brother of James. Again, the church, the early church knew who this was. This is one of the brothers of Jesus Christ. Again, let me go back. Why didn't he connect himself, though, as a brother of Jesus? because he was deriving his authority from Jesus Christ, not just on his basis that he was his brother, that it was his blood brother. They came from the same mother. That's not important to Jude, because that, that doesn't really hold weight. Like the rest of his brothers, actually, many, Jesus' brothers did not believe during his earthly life and ministry. It wasn't until after the resurrection that they clued in and realized that this was the Messiah, and were converted, and were preaching the word of Jesus Christ to, and the kingdom of God. So, Again, there's two things. The servant of Jesus Christ, that has to deal with his authority. And so, since he has that authority, they need to listen to him. It is Jesus Christ then speaking through his servant Jude to these people. So you and I need to also listen. This is the word of Jesus through Jude to us. He could have said Jude, the brother of Jesus. Again, he didn't claim that it wasn't important to him it's far more important to show the authority that he had as a slave and servant of Jesus Christ so Jude clarifies this and therefore the recipients should listen who though is Jude writing to so we just realized Jude a servant of Jesus Christ look at verse 1 and the brother of James to those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ who's Jude writing to well it's not exactly it's not exactly sure we're not sure It doesn't say to the church at Corinth. It doesn't say to the church at Philippi. It doesn't doesn't say anything specifically. We're not really sure. Most likely, he's writing to a group of Jewish Christians who he's discipled along the way. Somehow, they know him, and he is known as an authoritative figure that would know from Jesus Christ's teaching. But that's, again, speculative. We don't know because he does not say such and such people. Most likely, though, that's who we're talking about. What we do know are two things. One is we know this is a group of of believers, true believers, because of the the way he describes them. Look at this. Very important, he uses this phrase. He He says, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. If you aren't noticing it, those are terms of sovereign intervention and selection, or election, if you will. If you're not noticing, that's, again, this calling, this beloved or loving or keeping. These are terms that Jude is using, are pointing to God's choosing and selecting these Christians. Not some sort of meritorious choice on the believer's part to get on to team Jesus. No glory to us, by the way. All glory to King Jesus, who is the one who keeps. Who is the one who is, is, is doing these things, calling and beloved and beloved or loving. Don't miss that. And by the time we move through this letter, you're going to see why it's so important that we don't miss out on that. There are going to be other things that we're going to question here. You must remember who he's writing to and how he describes them. This is not new theology. He agrees with the way that Peter, Paul, and the rest of the disciples talk about their relationship with God. So, he's not saying something new. Let's go to verse 2. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. This is kind of like like a prayer greeting it's kind of a made-up term, but he's, he's embedding a little blessing here at the beginning, kind of greeting like grace to you. He is saying something like that mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. I want it to be overabundant to you. Um, if you're paying attention, as a good student, okay, students, get ready. If you're paying attention, already in the first two verses, we're seeing something that Jude does. Did you notice it? He uses sets of... Go ahead and look back at it. Called beloved, kept, mercy, peace, love. You see already in the first two verses he's used these triplets, this idea. I don't know if he had three triplet daughters. I have no idea. But this is something that's showing that he likes to use three at a time. As we go on, don't miss this class. This is important for us to learn how we learn the scriptures and how we are thinking. And it will have, you're like, that's a cool little thing. It's not just a cool little thing. It will help us actually interpret later on What sets he is trying to to, to bring out? What's the main verb versus what are those that are supporting it? So this is something we should keep in our memory bank and make sure we understand that Jude uses sets of three. We see it right here. So keep your eyes open. Now, what's the purpose of this book? We know the writer. We somewhat know the readers, true believers, probably, again, scattered in somewhat or perhaps maybe to a specific one we don't know. But what's the purpose of this letter? Look at verse 3. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Straightforward interpretation. I was excited to write to you about being Christians. This is great. But something so important came up that I completely changed my plan. And that's the re- the, this, re- this letter is the result. I had to change completely. My purpose in writing is to plead with you to fight for the faith. So the purpose of this book begins to take shape. He, like, again, this isn't like a, a, a narrative where we try to figure out what the purpose of the writer is. He tells us, very simply, I'm letting you know you need to fight. I'm appealing to you to fight for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Now, at first read, I remember reading this the first time, I was thinking, why did he add this little section, this little um, once for all delivered to the saints? Couldn't he have just said, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith? We would have all understood that. Their readers would have understood that. So I, I kind of question, why, Jude, did you put this, kind of tag it on there? If I don't know, well, student, if I'm a good student, I want to say that's probably for a reason then. He doesn't just throw words out there for no reason. So it's probably going to be important either later on or right now. I'm not really sure, but I need to pay attention to it, whether I need to like put a little question mark or something to say, okay, I need to keep this in my memory bank that he's going to maybe answer this or it has some sort of Uh, weight to the overall point of what Jude is saying. So I said, okay, I'll I'll keep that. There must be a reason. So let's look a little closer. The faith. He says, contend for the faith. Let me explain. We're not talking about, I want you to contend for the trusting God. Um, That's that's true, but that's certainly, he's using a title. He's using a term to, to, to kind of describe the whole of Christian doctrine and teaching. So when he talks about the faith, he is talking about those things that were handed down, beginning from the mighty interpreter himself, the most perfect one, Jesus Christ, who is not only, by the way, the best interpreter, but he is actually the Word. So he describes and reveals God perfectly. So Jesus Christ comes, interprets all things of the Old Testament, and all of history, actually, correctly in himself. And then he's teaching the disciples. This faith then, these teachings are being passed then from Jesus Christ to the disciples, or his apostles. And then these apostles are talking back and forth and working this theology out and understanding what he said and then putting it against Old Testament scripture to try to understand it better. And the result is what we have is called the New Testament. He explains uh, over and over again from the teachings of Jesus Christ, the ultimate authority what it means to know God. That is what he is doing. And so so when, we, when we read this, don't miss it. It's not as though I'm, I want you to fight for belief. Although that is true, he is giving a larger thing here. He's showing that the faith is representative of Christian teaching by Jesus Christ. Now, these are important designations, though, to follow. It's not just any faith. He specifies it. We said these, things. once for all, delivered to the saints. They show us that these doctrines are, again, in these interpretations of his teaching, are taught by Jesus Christ the apostles, taught by apostles to the early church, and penned as we know it in the New Testament. Stacy spent a little bit of time here, uh, beginning of Galatians, if you remember, talking about apostolic authority. This is very important, and I'm not going to rehash it here, but these are the channels that God has chosen to use to present truth to his people. Revelation through these people through those who were taught by Jesus Christ and who have penned it. So, they are once for all delivered. And again, this is an affirmation that this is how God is working in the early church. He is sending these things through his apostles and they are pending these things. It is, again, an affirmation of apostolic authority. Further, Jude makes it clear that any deviation from these or any correction uh, to the teaching of the apostles is not really an option. It's not it's, it's supposed to be once for all, not. and then we'll hone it and change our theology, and then we'll do this, and then this will be better. No, it's not open for recalibration. Like it's, it, it is once for all delivered to, to the saints. So Judah's writing to encourage his readers to fight for the original teachings of Jesus Christ. That's the purpose. Now the next important question, though, is why? There's got to be a context, right, that's happening here. Otherwise, there's no reason to say fight for the faith. What if everyone's doing a great job fighting for the faith already? There's got to be some sort of a problem. There's a situation at hand, or else he wouldn't just say, fight for the faith. Well, it's, it's peacetime. Why would we fight for the faith? He's going to explain that and tell us why. What gives? Jude, verse 4. For, or because, for certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 4 is the reason for verse 3. He's telling you this. Jesus telling his readers to fight for the faith. Why? He says, I'll tell you. You've got people that have snuck into your church that do not hold the faith that has been once for all delivered to the saints. These are ungodly people. You don't even know it. They snuck in. That means you didn't know it. Jesus actually called these people, he calls these people ravenous wolves in sheep's clothing. This picture a little bit freaks me out, but um, it gets across the idea. Wolves in sheep's clothing, Matthew 7, 15. Somehow the true believers haven't noticed that there are some sheep with some pretty sharp teeth amongst them. What are you saying, Jude? Be more clear. Okay, you have people living and breathing in this church who twist and pervert God's sweet gift of grace into self-centered pursuit of pleasure. Sensuality and thereby deny Jesus Christ as the one and only Messiah. Their actions have proclaimed that Jesus is not the Messiah and, in fact, has denied Him. They are so corrupt in their actions that they fit the bill for condemnation and destruction. Go ahead, look at them. They match the biblical description all over of false teachers. They match up exactly. And therefore, Going back to verse 4, long ago they were designated for this condemnation. They will be judged. The way these imposters are living proclaims their allegiance is to themselves, not to Jesus Christ. Have I made my intentions clear? Jude is saying, do you understand that I think you need to fight for the faith and this is why? Yes. The rest of the time then this morning, i given you who wrote it, who it's written to, um, the purpose of this writing, and then why this purpose is even in place because of these teachers. The rest of this morning, verses 5 through 16, are going to elaborate on verse 4. All right. Now, there's a lot of stuff that's going to happen in these, so this is, this, is helpful, this is a helpful hint. What you want to see, don't get derailed by the content that's going to come through here, because it actually will support verse 4. All right, so watch as we go this and remember all the stuff that's going to happen between 5 and 16 are going to tell us more about these false teachers, these wolves in sheep's clothing. And it will rather show us how important that phrase is and understanding why we need to fight for the faith. We will take next week to describe what we should do about it. We've got to understand this first so we understand this. All right, verse 5. Let's look at verse 5 and read through 5 through 7. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. That's the first thing. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. That's the second thing. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desires, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. In surprised at the time. He uses three examples to show us something. Again, catch this. The first was Israel, the people of Israel, who have gone out. He has saved them. He's rescued them from Egypt, and they're get out in the desert. And because of their unbelief, they never even make it to the Promised Land. If you remember the story, their whole generation dies. And because of their unbelief in trusting God, looking forward, they die. The second one, the angels who left their positions are kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day because they did not submit to God's authority and His order and authority. Number three, the people of Sodom and Gomorrah serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire because they indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire. A quick a quick aside here on the second one. We probably remember the first and the third one. We know Sodom and Gomorrah. We remember Israel. But what's the second one here? Uh, look in verse, it, 1 in verse 6, this is most likely the story of the sons of God, this is from Genesis 6, coming down and being part and, and, and having relations or sexual relations with women. they become, they've changed their form and they've gone past the boundaries of their positions and they've done this. Now, you say, Chris, I don't remember that. <laughs> I don't remember the explanation that that's what's going on, that they left their position, they did this, and they did that. That's because it doesn't say it in Genesis 6. There's a very simple explanation if you look back there, a very simple story. And there is judgment that comes on that in that time. But we don't have any details. So what is then, what is Jude referring to? J- something that angels were never supposed to do happened here, but how do they know about this? Jewish tradition... All right, this is specifically a book called First Enoch, explains the sin and punishment of these e- angels in detail. It gives you all the details of the story, as it were. Something that Jude's readers would have been familiar with. They'd have known about this. It's not new to them. It wouldn't have been some wacko story and saying, well, you're just speculating. Well, No, this was considered historical evidence from Jewish tradition that this is what happened. They understood it as valid Jewish tradition, and it was God's judgment on sin. They understood the, the meaning very clearly, not that this was some new revelation, but rather that they understood that the, like the other two stories, or three, right, what was happening was very specific. Because of sin, there will be judgment. And the judgment, if you watch, escalates. The first one, Israel, physical death. The second one, darkness leading to judgment. And the third one, Sodom and Gomorrah, eternal fire is what Jude says, escalating worse and worse and worse for this judgment and this sin from the sin so seems like there should be more though like w- w- what is this about what are you what are you telling us about and there should be more so let's continue to read go back to verse 8 through 10 yet in like manner these people also relying on their dreams number one defile the flesh number two reject authority and number three to blaspheme the glorious ones But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Look at this first phrase. This is the connector. Don't miss this. This first phrase says, Yet in like manner these people also. This is a big clue for us as readers. It helps us see that what he just said about those three groups Israel, angels, and then Sodom and Gomorrah, this, this whole idea should be transferred to understanding better these wolves in sheep's clothing. In other words, we should see those things and say, you're putting those, these wolves in that category. In a sense, uh, this example I just gave you of judgment in these different groups of people who sinned is relevant to the discussion. It's very important for them to see that. It's a very strong connection. It takes the people that Jude is calling out and places them in category of famously judged sinners. There's no no wishy-washy with Jude. He's calling them out. This is a big deal. Jude tells us that these people are getting their authoritative basis from dreams. All right, so did you see that? It says, relying on their dreams. Now, this is not weird, although in our day, we would say people that are relying on their dreams from authority, that's not a good thing. We wouldn't say that's authoritative. However... In scripture, we see it a lot, especially in this time. If you look at Matthew, the first two chapters of Matthew, I read this in my Bible reading last week and I was kind of amazed. In the first two chapters alone, um, God uses dreams to speak to Joseph and then he speaks to even the wise men. We don't even know their spiritual concerns, but he speaks to them through a dream not to go back to Herod for the, save, for the salvation of even Jesus in that regard. But The point here is not to tell you about that story, but rather that this is not weird that dreams are being relied on for authoritative use. What's different here is what results. They're relying on their dreams, and that's fine, but what results doesn't seem to match up. Let me point out one more thing. When we look back at the beginning, remember I said the purpose statement had that extra tack on, once for all delivered to the saints? That was very much a settled deal Given to the apostles through the direct teaching of Jesus Christ, explaining the scriptures to them. These men or, or women, I'm not sure, rely on their dreams. Once for all delivered from the saints to the saints through Jesus Christ, and their dreams. Do you see that they should be put up against each other and one falls far short of the other? And again, we're gonna see that these dreams, again, the dreams are not the bad part if, if they were right. But what's happening is that the way that they're living these out and the way that they're relying on them is proving that they're false and they're showing that they're not from God. So these ungodly people, described as the one who rely on their dreams, do three things. Again, if you're not catching it now, you know, I don't know what to do for you. So they defile the flesh, they reject authority, and third, they blaspheme the glorious ones. Instead of relying on their dreams to rebuke God's people or to clarify doctrine or to even to edify the body and help each other, These wolves are using these dreams as a means to justify themselves and their own sinful practices. And so, things, then they list these things defiling the flesh. This is a clear statement about sexual immorality. It's clearly showing them that they're likened, remember who they're likened to Sodom and Gomorrah. Not good. Rejecting authority. We're talking about a rejection of authority in general. God's word, the apostles saying, Well, I have new revelation. I have my dreams have shown me that this is okay. And they're perverting God's grace for their own sensuality. Blaspheming the glorious ones. This one's interesting. Jude is talking about some sort of interaction with angelic powers. And in a way, it's totally inappropriate. Now, to explain this, Jude is going to give us a few more pieces here. He's going to kind of tell us this really weird, weird story about Michael the archangel. If you can, I'm not a good writer, but like sometimes in my own writing so I don't get confused with the main line, I'll like put it in parentheses, you know, like, okay. But then there's a story about Michael, the archangel. It is not the main line. Don't get weirded out or like that this is strange. Like it's definitely an interesting story about something that happened between Michael and the devil over the body of Moses. I don't remember that story, you know, and there's a reason for that because it's not in the Bible. He is drawing from a different piece of scripture, uh, excuse me, a different piece of literature. Let me explain the story and talk about it. Jude is going to give us this clarification. In Deuteronomy 34, Moses dies. When he dies, in verse 6 of Deuteronomy 34, it says, The Lord buried Moses. No one was there. No human saw it. And so Jewish tradition filled in these gaps and most likely a lot of them were very historical in making sure they understood what happened. And their theology at the time, understanding who God was and how angelic powers worked. And so out of this we understand from an extra-canonical book called Assumption of Moses, this Jewish tradition again, that this is speaking about a legal dispute between the devil and Michael. And when the Michael came to get the body of Moses after he passed away, the devil was there claiming that he could have him. Now, at this point, Michael is going to do something. But let me just make sure we don't get so far off in the weeds that you miss the point. Jude doesn't care about adding extra stuff back into Scripture and saying, hey, this should be in the canon as well, and this should be part of the Bible. That's not his point. Just like the first time he used it, what he's trying to do is show you something very specific about this. Michael, who had every right to revile the devil, the devil didn't have claim over his body, instead of doing that, What does Michael do? He says something different. He says, The Lord rebuke you. The reason this is relevant is because these people are reviling demons, those angelic powers. Don't don't confuse glorious ones with righteous ones. We are talking about beings that were made in a glorious state, very different from, from our own. So he's talking about reviling glorious ones or blaspheming them. He's talking about demons. And these people had the gall, the utter pride in their own authority to revile and to blaspheme these demons. Again, Michael, the archangel, a being far more powerful with authority and these things, again, God-deriven, wouldn't even do it. He said, rather, may the Lord rebuke you. I will not mess with you. You are a glorious being, no. These people, however, are taking upon themselves in their own authority to rebuke these things. And so, Again, what they are trying to do here is they they are stepping outside of their realm. So to make sure I understand, we, we get verse 10. Don't miss this. The things that they don't understand, demons, they revile and insult. But the things they do understand, human feelings, sexuality, debauchery, pleasure, they respond like unthinking animals and rush to them and get themselves so deep that it is for their physical destruction and most likely their spiritual destruction as well. They defile the flesh, and it will end in judgment, eventually their destruction. Make no mistake about what Jude is saying. He is talking about sexual immorality, sexual acts, justifying it through their claim on truth because of what they had in their dreams, that this is somehow God's word. We can do what we want to. It's all covered by grace. This is what's happening with these people. Let's read verse 11. Woe to them... For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's heir and perished in Korah's rebellion. Pretty straightforward. This is woe. This is not good. This is a big warning. These guys are headed for destruction. And the next part just adds more texture to the descriptions of these wolves. These, These guys. First, Each person referenced in verse 11, excuse me, each person in verse 11 represents the wolves. It's telling us more about their true character. So the first one, Cain. If you remember for anything, it's that he was the first murderer and the first one that would not listen to God's authority. He did not listen to divine authority. Second, Balaam was known for his greed, his lust for money, and his willingness to be bought out to speak what the people really wanted to hear. Jude makes it pretty clear. These guys abandoned themselves for the sake of gain, a.k.a. money, power, stuff. The third one, Korah will be remembered for all of time as the one who gathered people together to rebel against Moses. If you remember this story, it is stark contrast to those, what they're supposed to do in supporting and loving and following Moses. Instead, they went off to rebellion, and God responds by sending these people alive to Sheol by splitting open the earth, and they fall into the earth and are covered by God's wrath. They are the classic example of destruction because of judgment and sin. And now, these three things are describing these wolves that are in the body of Christ. They're consumed by God's wrath. Jude is not kind to these wolves. Uh, he treats them just how they ought to be treated. Verse 12 and 13, let Let's look. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as... They feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves. Waterless clouds swept along by winds. Fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. Wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame. Wandering stars for whom the glory of utter darkness, excuse me, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Each of these examples points out another characteristic of the wolves. (laughs) He just keeps on layering it, keeps layering it. Hidden reefs, think of a coral reef when a ship is coming in, it cannot see it and it will destroy the bottom of boats and it will sink them. And he's making this, he's saying, these teachers are like this, you don't even know they're there. In your love feasts or your gatherings together as you corporately worship, they're undermining the whole thing and ripping the bottom of your boats off. That's the way that they act. You may not even know it, but that's what the whole, they're hidden reefs underneath doing this. Shepherds feeding themselves, this is pretty easy to understand. This is coming straight out of Ezekiel 34. But the point here is a shepherd does one thing. It cares for sheep. That, makes it, that keeps it from danger, and it feeds them. It takes them to new pastures. Instead, these shepherds, by the way, this is a pretty clear indication that they're leaders, these shepherds are feeding themselves instead, not looking after the sheep. Waterless clouds, God made clouds to give water for us and for the growth of the rest of the planet. Fruitless trees, fruit have, trees have one purpose, that's to produce fruit. Waves casting up the foam of shame. You know, when you see that ugly, dirty foam on the beach, it's left there. My kids think it's gross, and they jump over, and it kind of like leaves like a stain almost when the crashing waves happen. There's bubbles, and it's kind of like brown bubbles. Not like, I don't know who came up with the idea of seafoam green. Like, if you look and see what's left over, it can be disgusting. That's the idea here. They're leaving their mark of ugliness and of dirt and grime. This is what's happening to, this, this, these, to these people. That's what's their, They're leaving this on the congregation. Lastly, wandering stars, this is a sailor's nightmare. They need the stars to provide guidance. Wandering star? What good are they if they can't give us any sort of direction? And to cap it all off, he finishes his phrase reminding the readers that the judgment for the wolves, I love this phrase, the gloom of utter darkness, is reserved for them. It will happen. God will judge them. The last part, to put the icing on the cake, we will end with a prophecy about judgment for godless people from an extra-canonical book, First Enoch, and the truth is, is we should probably do this as a maybe a course seminar explaining uh, the use of extra-biblical things within Scripture. This is not the only time that this happens, by the way, um, and don't, don't, be, don't be deceived. The fact that he quotes from an extra-canonical book doesn't make it less authoritative. Jude uses this, and so he brings validity to the story. It doesn't mean that you can just strike it out of your Bible. No, not at all. He's using this very much on purpose, and he's bringing this to come. Let's read verse 14 through 16. It's it's important. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. In case all the other examples somehow fall on deaf ears to the readers, Jude will bring this discussion to a close and show you that the false teachers will be condemned. It's written, he quotes from 1 Enoch concerning these, these people. And two things are worth noting here. The first thing that we can't miss is this uh, repetition of the same word over and over again. Did, did you get, catch it, how he kind of describes them? What, is he, what does he call them? Ungodly. Four times. Like We should definitely get that. We should understand that that's, that's something he's trying to bring out here. This character trait, being ungodly, is being again put on these false teachers. They are anti-God. Don't be deceived. But the second thing is far more important because it has consequences. The ungodly will be judged. I mean, behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness. Jude is saying that these people, even leaders, who are destined for judgment because of their unbelief. And that if you look closely, you can see them by their fruits, their actions, what they're doing. They are wolves in sheep's clothing. Now, we won't go any further today. We'll stop for today. There's much more coming in these last few verses. that are very important, and we will come back because they're going to help us round out from the beginning to end. It's going to put the book in on the other side. But today, we'll stop here. And I I, I think, like I said this a couple times before, but... um, Very important that we ask at the end of a sermon or the end of reading something the question, So what? Is this just more information for you guys to know? I'm a better student of the word and that's good, and I can again answer more questions in trivial pursuit that are in the Bible category? No. We need to ask ourselves, So what? What does this matter? And I'll bring out two things for us today. Number one, there are still wolves. In sheep's clothing in the American church. It has not gone away. There are still people who do these things. Yes, uh, you know, and, and, and it may not be as blatant, we still do hear sometimes about sexual scandals that happen of people in ministry um, and, and, you know, that they prove themselves by that. But other things are more, uh, you know, incognito that you don't see as much and it's, it's harder to discern and they sneak in because they seem more acceptable somehow to, you know, modern-day morals, etc. How about the pursuit of money? How about giving a gospel that is tickling the ears of people and is softer and better and gives you your best life now? I'm not trying to name names or call out and be ugly whatsoever. I'm trying to help us understand there are these people in our world who will use Scripture and use these things for their own gain, for power, for money, for their own pleasure and sensuality. Do not be deceived, flock. We cannot be deceived by this. Jude is saying, open our eyes and see the truth and know that there is judgment. But the second thing I think that we ought to think about here is that the way that Jude describes these wolves does not only apply to leadership. The things that they struggle with and the things that they have hidden and snuck in, it's not just for leaders. We struggle with the same things. There are people I'm not naive enough to think that everyone here is a loyal follower of Jesus Christ. And so, may I say to you and us, those believers, examine yourselves and know know that God will not pass His judgment. He will not allow it to go over for those who do not trust Him fully and make Him king. Only may it come through Jesus Christ. That's why we sing Christ alone. There's no other way. No other way. Am I ever guilty of perverting God's grace in my own sensuality or my pursuit of pleasure or ease or comfort or whatever it is? Can... uh, any of these descriptions hint at the issues that I have in my own heart? These are not fun things to think about, but we need to examine ourselves and think, Lord, would you show me the truth that's in my own heart and call to Him? We'll spend more time again next week, and Jude will spend more time explaining what we ought to do moving forward. But we need to allow us to sit and think about it is God's truth. It is His Word. So don't allow it to just leave us. This is not a fun trip through Jude. I'm not going to say it is. But the truth is that he is saying that it is necessary for us. So we need to think about it and work it through. Consider these things and trust God alone. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. Um, we thank you for your grace in Jesus Christ alone. We have no claim on deserving something other than hell and death and misery. We ask, God, that you would show us the truth and that we may believe and love and follow after you. God, would you show us the truth that we may see these people for who they are, that we would contend for the faith, and that would mean that we would examine ourselves and trust Jesus Christ alone, who is able to keep, who is able to love, and has called us to himself. We thank you, God, for these warnings, and we ask that you would cause them to help us think correctly. We love you in Jesus' name.